difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps, and Tasha Robinson. In our last episode, we revisited Mike Nichols' Working Girl, about a Staten Island secretary who pulls herself out of the secretarial pool. This week, we're talking about a film where powerlessness is the point, and any upward mobility is tacitly connected to staying silent. In the minimalist performance and film that recalls Delphine Seerig and Jean Dielman, Julia Garner stars in The Assistant as Jane, a recent college graduate with aspirations to become a film producer. But as a new assistant to a Harvey Weinstein-like executive who never appears on screen, Jane quickly learns that she's in a toxic environment and doesn't have the leverage to do anything about it. When she picks up on her boss's predatory behavior... She tries to do the right thing and report it to the human resources rep, played by Matthew McFadden, but that conversation doesn't go as planned. We'll talk about the lead-up and the fallout after the break. The last two checks don't have a name or anything, just the dollar amount. Uh, ignore it. Okay, and will he know what it's for? Yep, he'll know. I wouldn't sit there. Never sit on the couch. <laughs> here and here. Initial here. Sign there. Do I need a lawyer or something? Do you have a lawyer? What happened? Where are you going? Uh, I was worried for this girl. <laughs> I mean, they were just like laughing about it. Can you deal with this? Hi. Why me? Who was that? Of that. Wasting my time. We're excited for you. It's a great opportunity. What can we do? Do about what? So, first question, I mean, The Assistant is a movie I've been kind of like stumping for for a bit, but it's also gotten an interesting response from critics and from audience. So, first, I just want to know what everyone thought of it. I thought it was terrific. I just was gripped by it, and I, I was kind of locked into what it was trying to do, doing so much with so little. And, of course, when I when I was done, they reverted back to the rental screen on the service I rented it from, and it had a two-star rating from other <laughs> from other viewers, which actually didn't surprise me. Yeah, I think it was extremely formally impressive and extremely unsatisfying (laughs) as a viewing experience. (laughs) I mean, Tasha and I kind of uh, confabbed about our feelings about the assistant before uh, (laughs) before this. And as I think I told her, I'm on the the positive end of neutral for this this film. Um, Like I do really admire how it makes the minimalism work. I like the day in the life approach. I love Julia Garner here and in pretty much everything else she's done except Ozark, which I haven't watched, but I gather she's great. in. (laughs) But you know, and this is by design, it is not a film that you get any sort of payoff or catharsis from you know it's a it's a bit of a wallow you know especially because like maybe it's because i was 
prepared for where this was going, which was that nothing would come of her complaint. Uh, I was primed for that both in the description of the movie and just my uh, awareness of the world in the, in the past few years. So like, I didn't expect there to be any sort of reckoning for this boss. But I think just sort of going through that experience was the word my mom used after we finished this film was bleak. And I, I think that is uh, kind of where I come down on it. I don't have a problem inherently with bleak viewing experiences, but it's not a movie that I think I'm going to want to turn on on a Saturday and just enjoy the way I do Working Girl, you know? <laughs> no. I'd be very troubled if, you, if it were that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The first word I would reach for wouldn't be bleak, it would be dispiriting. I, I found this to be a fairly dispiriting movie, which does not necessarily make it a, a bad experience, certainly. But as soon as this ended, I just I had this also dispiriting uh, feeling of I'm going to disappoint Scott Tobias yet again. <laughs> and and I, I turned to my husband and I said, I'm, I'm going to let him down again. And he said, you know, I was expecting this film to be more uncomfortable, but I was also expecting something to happen at some point. <laughs> So I like I think that speaks to why I did not find this a uh, a very helpful experience I guess. I was not necessarily expecting catharsis. I certainly wasn't expecting you know for her to bring the the roof down upon this man who is committing some fairly minor crimes as far as uh Hollywood casting couch crimes go. But I was expecting to sympathize with her more. I was expecting more of a sense of righteous cleansing outrage. And I feel like this movie muddies the waters in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways around how her character is built, around how she approaches the complaint, around the setup of the story. And I ended up feeling a little dirty in how little I sympathized with her, given some of the choices she makes and how she carries them out. I really wanted to sympathize with this character more. And it's certainly like nothing wrong with uh, Julia Garner. I, I really like her performance here. I think she does a lot with a little. And she has just a very expressive way of communicating that the character is trying not to express anything. You can really feel her vulnerability and all of the things that she's keeping tamped down and hidden. But in the end, you described in one sentence almost everything that happens in the movie. Yes. And that's, it's very hard <laughs> yes. for me to look at that and say this is a match. <laughs> this, is, this is like the Simpsons episode that opens with the soccer match. And it's like, and it's like, <laughs> you know, center passes back to uh, forward and holds it, holds it, holds it. Like to me, uh, that's thrilling. That's what's great about it. I mean, the fact that I did basically describe everything that happens in the movie in the intro is a huge, huge plus for me. It's a mood piece. It's about establishing what a toxic environment of this sort might feel like and what it might feel like to be in a position where you can do nothing about it. If you want a career, if you want to move forward, if you want to realize your dreams that you've been talking to your parents about. I mean, that stuff is heartbreaking to me. Those two conversations that she has on the phone, first with her mother and then her father, and she's desperate, I think, to draw comfort for them, but she's also trying to not seem like this thing that she wanted and that was going to you know give her career a boost was not so crushingly disappointing and i don't know i just think this film is incredible it really I just, in, in watching it again and seeing all the little details about her day-to-day -day work and also about 
the things that she's picking up from her boss. You know, the, obviously there's the earring she finds on the floor, um, certain interactions she has with other women, um, the conversations she has with her boss on the phone, which which is kind of like a malevolent peanuts mm-hmm. <laughs> peanuts teacher <laughs> yeah. uh, thing <laughs> happening. Uh, <laughs> and um, you know, and then when she actually is at a point where she can report it, the substance of what she's saying is not enough you know and it's certainly not enough when everybody in the office including the hr guy knows damn well what's going on (laughs) and knows who this guy is and isn't going to isn't going to help her i just think the film is it just describes the contours of a kind of a a prison that she's in here that she can't get out of and that's enough for me Uh, and it does it so efficiently i agree with you scott i I, part of what struck me so much was about how much Everyone knows what's going on, but nobody knows. Everyone talks about it, but no one actually really talks about it. And it's just such a gross situation to be in and also still plausible. And it also struck me that this is a product of stories before we even knew how bad the Weinstein story got. This is, you know, comes off as, you know, just Tasha says, relatively tame compared to what Weinstein actually did. I don't know if that's sort of outside the, the scope of the film, but it kind of makes it even more disturbing. Or what Louis C.K. did, or Mm -hmm. I just like so many, or what Kevin Spacey did. So many men that we've gotten, what John Lassender did, damn it. So many men that we've gotten so many ugly stories about. And in this case, it just seems uh, so dialed down by comparison. And maybe that makes it a lot more realistic. Uh, It certainly makes it more difficult for the protagonist to navigate in a way that I think is interesting. But Scott, I think fundamentally something that the two of us are just never going to agree on is you love mood piece films that just sit in an emotion for a very long period of time way more than I'm ever going to. Like, Mm. I really enjoy uh, super fast, challenging films that barrage me with information. Like, I like films paced at the level of Steven Soderbergh's Informant. I mean, I like, I like all that stuff, too, but I mean, that's and not I like what mood this pieces, doing, But though. you are way more drawn to mood pieces than I am, and I'm way more drawn to, to super fast movies than you are. This is just like a fundamental difference between us. And in this case, it wasn't the lack of action. It wasn't the, the lack of incident that disconnected me from it. It was the fact that a lot of these little details that you're bringing up are presented in a way that make her seem very naive and in some ways unsympathetic. The understanding that comes midway through that uh, meeting with a HR fellow that she's only been in this job for five weeks was just gutting to me. To me, it took so much of the wind out of her sails. This isn't something that she's like lived with for a while and has been uh, trying to debate what to do with. Like she is quietly charging off in in her very meek and dialed down version of high dudgeon to say something that everybody already knows. And when he when he just completely guts her, it's cruel because she's such a little mouse of a person it's bad enough that he steps on her he doesn't have to like keep twisting his foot to grind her down further it would have been so easy for him to just kind of gently say you don't really have much to go on here this is this is all coincidence you're objecting to things that you're it kind of feels like you're making up and you you come across you don't come across well here that's all he would have had to do to completely shut the thing down but instead, yeah, but I, he keeps twisting the knife. And 
I wanted to feel more outrage for her. But at the same time, I kept just kind of coming back to the fact that he's right. She doesn't have anything much to go on. And she does come across as almost weirdly jealous, particularly of this like naive new girl who's getting more perks than she well, is. Okay, but I think I would argue that that is sort of the point. And I'm, you know, we're, we're recording this mere minutes after we uh, recorded what you will have heard last week in our feedback section about uh, sympathetic characters. And I think it's a mistake to view Jane, which is her name, and I don't think they ever actually say it in the, in, in the yeah, film. Yeah, I don't think, we learned, I don't think yeah. we learned her name until the credits. Yeah. like I think it's a mistake to view her in the context of a hero or someone who is trying to be a hero, because I think what this movie is trying to do, and what I would argue it succeeds really well in doing, is showing the culture that abuse of power like this fosters and exploring the idea of enablers. You know, when the Weinstein scandal, you know, first broke, there was a lot of talk about the women who enabled him, who brought women to him and who made his meetings and, you know, deceived the women he was taking advantage of. And I think that the interactions we see or lack thereof between Jane and her co-workers show us how isolating this type of environment can be when you have this sense of competition and it could be taken away from you anytime. And, you know, you can only get ahead by throwing other people under the bus while at the same time not rocking the boat. And there, it's just this very delicate dance that one man's abuse of power just ripples out in all these really quietly devastating ways. You know, the the thing that really struck me throughout this movie is how alone she is in the workplace. And with the exception of the two uh, kind of buddy-buddy dudes that she works next to, Everyone else in the office is kind of the same way. Like we have the man and the woman, like sort of higher up. The titles are all very confusing, but the the man and the woman who are going with the boss on the plane at the at the yeah. end of the day, and you know the last shot we get of them is them like kind of sitting at opposite sides of the car, staring at their phone. They're not talking to Jane. They're not talking to each other. They're just waiting on their boss, and it feels like everyone is in their own little personal hell in this office mm. because they are so trapped by this power structure that has been set up and that they can only uh, move through by compromising and Jane's brief attempt to like move outside that structure is just like so quickly falls apart that to go back to the idea of thinking about her in terms of a hero and why that would make this movie really unsatisfying like that's not what it's about you know it's not about her really you know it's about her as an example of how this happens but it's really about everyone in that office i think it's a movie about that office more than it's about her she's just our sort of the point that we're following through the film I agree, but with a movie that has so little to hang its hooks on emotionally, mm -hmm. apart from what she's feeling, you get to know so little about the men that she works with, for instance. The, these two men who foist off their boss's angry wife on her and want her to deal with the problem. These men who come and stand over her when she's typing yet another of a series of endless apologies to her boss uh, for having offended him in some way and dictate different ways for her to grovel 
very clearly based on their experience at mm-hmm. groveling an email to him. All of these different uh, little aspects of the people she works with, we don't really get to know any of them. We know that the PA that she has to tell, like, you're going with him to the West Coast tonight. And he seems so disgusted and wearied. But we don't even know why. Is it because he has a family? Is it because he's used to being jerked around? Is it because he knows he's going to be standing on the New York sidewalk at uh, 10 at night, waiting for the boss to stop flirting with someone? We don't know anything about anybody but her. Well, I think the implication is that they all have a story like hers. Maybe they've all sat in that office at some point five weeks into their career there. Well, I mean, think about the conversation that she's having with the HR person. It's really not about this specific incident because it's really about, there's a point where she says like, how can we get him to stop? It's like, they're not saying explicitly what the culture is, but it's completely understood by everybody there, who what this guy is doing, and it can be is something as little at this point for these characters as like throwing off their schedule or making them miss a flight or something like that. But it can also be a very close view of terrible, horrible, you know, predatory events. And I think that when you watch the film, I mean, she's managing. I think I counted like four or five different women in in, in different situations. You're talking about. It's not just the one person that she reports to HR. It's also other women, the women who, and I think, you know, the the bit with the earring and that exchange, that felt very scary when she passes that earring off to the woman in the elevator. That did not feel like that was a, an okay situation. And, And it certainly didn't feel okay when a producer comes towards the end of the film and delivers this actress to his office and talks about it being a waste of time, a big waste of time for her. And while Jane is watching, you know, this audition footage, we have the understanding that this actress is currently in a compromised position in his office. And that's kind of where the movie ends. So there's multiple women, you know, in this movie, not to mention the wife. She's in the terrible and impossible position of trying to, you know, appease with lies that, of course, she can see right through. Wait, what did you find scary about the earring sequence? I found the body language. You know, who were you scared for? The woman who with the earring, that felt pretty bad. Uh, I mean, in terms of her expression, it felt it, it was uh, felt like she'd been caught or like or, she had you know, like or, a, or violated. Yeah. I mean, like I don't know. It, you know, and there there's all these. She's co- you know collecting all these drinks in the office. So there's just something. It's unseemly, and and I think she's just aware of it. I mean, she's in a position as his assistant to where she is managing that schedule. There's an official schedule and an unofficial schedule. Everybody knows the official schedule, but she is intimately aware of what the unofficial schedule is and what she's really managing in terms of what his, his time and the appointments he's missing and what kind of appointments he's keeping. It is, I just think that's immensely disturbing and the step that the step that she takes to try to stop it is, you know, kind of, you know, is heroic and it is heartbreaking that it works out the way it does. Um, you know, and that line, that line at the end of the scene where, where he's like, you know, you, you know, you're not as type or something yeah. like that is just, it's just, that hits like Don't a, worry, you're not as type. That, yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely a twist the a knife moment yeah. that Tasha was talking about. Yeah. One of my favorite shots in the movie is the copy machine where it's mm. just printing out one copy of another yeah. of a prospective actress and it's just the industrialization 
of this person's abuse. The more I read about Weinstein, it's like, were the movies just the cover story? Was the real business abusing these women and the movies were just sort of the machine he built to allow this to happen? And and you kind of get a sense of that here as well. I also really liked the relationship – not liked (laughs) and relationship were the wrong words here. But I thought it was very – I, I compelled scene, by <laughs> yeah i thought the scenes between jane and the executive assistant or i think she's credited as the executive assistant the, the character played by a uh, uh, pervert Beatty, uh who jane tries to be warm with and is met with total frostiness and i almost feel like it's kind of sort of hostility mixed with pity like she'd been in this situation before and she you know she knew how, how pointless it was but she wasn't in a position to or inclined to lend a helping hand to Jane as well. And it sort of drives home her isolation with whom she probably has the most in common with and the most shared experiences with will not in any way create an opening for them to talk or communicate or commiserate over, over what's going on. It's certainly a movie about isolation and about struggling against the systemic problem that is this office and this terrible boss. I think fundamentally my, my problem was just the problem with this office is top to bottom. The fact that she's coming in at four in the morning and staying until well, what it seems like at least 10 at night is a problem. The fact that she's washing the dishes for other women who like very much treat her as as literally a fixture of the office is a problem the fact that she's managing all of these things that you shouldn't necessarily have to manage that are or demeaning the fact that her male counterparts push dirty work off on her the fact that her boss is clearly throwing things at those male assistants and screaming at them like every aspect of this office comes across as abusive and like they're they're dealing with somebody who's literally costing the business business, you know, who's literally skewering potentially lucrative deals because casting couching women is more important than meeting with an international delegation that's come in to do business. It seems to me that the problems she has with him and the problems anyone would have with him are extensive. So I don't trust her when she goes into that office and can't come up with an explanation for her complaints, anything more than, well, that girl is young. She comes across as she doesn't have it together yet. Like she can't form the words to express what she's objecting to, which is not just that her boss is a sleazy person. It's that Everything about this uh, working relationship is terrible and exploitative and demeaning and, and exhausting and not really guaranteed to get her anywhere. Well, I think it's also speaking to why it took so long for the Weinstein, what was an open secret, to come out because of, again, this sort of culture of isolation and competition that is fostered. Any attempt at whistleblowing is inherently like kneecapped in the way that we see her attempt. Like she can't really voice what her problem is because she doesn't know the full extent of what's happening. Like no one knows the full extent of what's happening. They only have suspicions and you can't really report suspicions nor can you report the things that create those suspicions as actual actions taken. I'm having trouble with the suggestion that the blame is somehow on her for not explaining herself well enough or not handling the situation correctly. And I think there's a framing that's sort of one of the main obstacles in addressing this sort of behavior on a systemic level. 
I definitely don't mean to say that we should blame her for what her boss is doing because she didn't find the right words to object to it. I definitely don't mean to say that any of this is in some way her fault. I just find her a less sympathetic character because she's trying to do the right thing and she's so bad at it. She's not bringing in the right complaints and she's not bringing them in in the right way. And there's something to be said for noble failure. There's something to be said for for standing up and trying. But I think Kitty Green just compromises her in so many ways in terms of her questionable motives here, in terms of what does actually seem to be like a, a jealousy of some of these girls. Man, that I, it's hard to see her as, as having the moral authority uh, to even try to kick down this house of cards. I'm, I'm startled by that. I'm shocked. I, I really am. Like, I don't, I think she is coming to him with a kind of shorthand that he totally understands. Like, he writes down what she says and it repeats it back to her in a way that's utterly diminishing, right? It's just these details of this person from you know idaho who's staying at the peninsula and he's also like it it all sounds very petty this complaint but he knows what she's talking about and she knows that he knows what he's talking about and her faith is that because he is in human resources which ostensibly is supposed to Hmm. represent uh employees and be an ear for employee complaints just like this one that he is going to pick up on what she's saying understand what she's saying and take some sort of action to make this a more livable environment. And what she discovers and what everybody, what I personally have discovered in my in my life and what other people will know about human resources is that they're not on your side. They're on that's, they're, that's the, where the, the film lost me because because the you know they're human resources. They're there to help you. I mean, <laughs> this is such an unrealistic yeah. depiction of corporate life. It was this is so where funny. I lost my sympathy for Keith because he's such a naive character and he's just he's not he's not putting together the objections to this film in like in a, a cohesive way, and we're all able to just cut him down. No, I, I, I mean I, love I know that, that McFadden's line. McFadden's line is is like, well, will she do anything to hurt the company? <laughs> but but that's just it. Like her boss is doing so many things to hurt the company, and that is really relevant and yeah, actionable. I, action. I don't know that she's in the position to make those claims. I mean, you know, she has been there for five weeks. She's just out of school. I mean, she's in a position in every you know every way that Green films her is is as like this small framed uh, small mm-hmm. person in in a big room. You know, even like the scene where she's writing the. Um, the elevator with the character accredited as famous, famous actor, actor, which is <laughs> Patrick, Patrick Wilson. <laughs> but I think it captures, like, obviously, Julia Garner is an actress herself, but I think it captures the position of what it's like to be with a famous person and f- how, to, how small you can feel and, and awkward you can feel and not knowing what to say. But I think that also kind of speaks to her smallness within the organization as well. To Tasha's point about uh, sensing jealousy coming from Jane, I did get that as well. And I got it less in the scene with McFadden and more in the scene where I believe it's Sienna, the girl from Idaho, <laughs> comes in to start her job. Also <laughs> name not revealed during the course of the yeah. film. Yeah, I'm, I'm going off of the IMDb credits right now. But you know where Jane kind of sets her up for her first day and just like the resentment radiating off of her. And that scene is after the human resources scene, correct? 
The scene where she takes her to the hotel yes. is before. Right. But the scene where she comes in for and her, sets her to start her job, yes. like like that's af- after. Yeah. And there is jealousy there. There's resentment there. There's may- maybe the words of, you know, you're not his type anyway, <laughs> echoing in her head there. But I think that's all there. Not to comment on Jane's character, but again, to comment on the culture that this boss has fostered in in this workplace and the way that it pits would-be allies against each other. Like, there is no one in this office who is on anyone else's side. Even the guys who are sort of pals and go out for drinks afterward don't seem like they would do anything that would hurt their own prospects in order to protect the other in any way. I feel like I'm inevitably going to come across as a villain here for not (laughs) sympathizing with her enough and in the right ways. What I'm saying is I don't feel like the movie sympathizes with her enough or in the right ways. I feel like mm-hmm. like Kitty Green undermines her in a lot of ways. That car scene where she's taking Sienna to the hotel and she just glares out the window and refuses to engage with her until Sienna like repeatedly reaches out to her, to me undermines the whole idea that she's in this to protect Sienna. Like Mm. she throws up these ideas of, you know, she's a very young girl and she's being taken advantage of, but she doesn't reach out to her in any way or try Mm. to communicate with her. There's no sense of like sympathy or fellow feeling there. There's a resentment of, oh, well, when I came to town, they didn't put me up in a hotel. Like I had to fend for myself. It's nice that you're getting all of these privileges, but she just, she comes across as prickly and dissatisfied with the situation in a way that makes her a more unsympathetic character for me. And I admire what Green is doing in terms of not making this like a simple, like the boss is an evil bowling pin and she's the bowling ball that that keeps gutter balling while trying to hit him. uh, And it's just a straight line. I think it's interesting that Green puts in all of these little details and reasons to doubt her and reasons to feel uncomfortable about what she tries to do. But at the same time, I think it makes it a more frustrating and difficult to grasp film. I'm just I'm shocked by all of it. <laughs> like the whole thing. I don't I'm not, get it. I'm like, not shocked. I, I, like I, I understand what what Tasha is saying, and I don't. Yeah, th- I, I, I don't her, think. I, just, but I, I think it just comes down to what you're bringing to this movie and what you're bringing to that character and that performance. Like to bring it back to Julia Garner, Tasha. I forget. Did you watch The Americans? No. Okay. So that's where I and I believe Keith and Scott were first introduced to her. Yeah. She's one I can claim of, of spotting early on. She's in this film called Electric Children, which isn't very good, but she's very good at it. <laughs> okay. Um, um, but well, I associate her most with the role she played on The Americans, which was a very young, very naive, in over her head in <laughs> really uh, catastrophic, tragic ways girl. And. Kimmy. Kimmy, yeah. And even now, many years later, uh, Julia Garner just, you know, reads very young and she is playing it. She's playing a maybe 21 year old, fresh out of graduate school character who it's very believable to me that a woman that age in a entry level position in an extremely cutthroat field would be timid and reserved and not 
charismatic or social. And I think that her youth makes her missteps read as realistic to me rather than as characterization flaws. Again, I'm not saying these are characterization flaws. I think they're characterization choices Mm -hmm. that for me undermine the film. I think Green is doing these things very thoughtfully and very deliberately. They just don't work for me. Oh, I was going to say, we haven't talked about the decision to keep the boss off screen, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a a really effective choice. Uh, She's doing so much with the sound design here where the conversations come in and out of focus in, in some really interesting ways where you can kind of pick up some words or sometimes a lot of words, uh, depending on, on what she wants you to hear. But the idea of keeping the boss himself uh, off camera, I think, works really well because whoever you put in there could not be as powerful or as intimidating or as loathsome as the person you're imagining uh, as, as well. Does that work for everybody else? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. I think that I think that's a brilliant choice. Mm. I think it would have been so easy to make him a toady looking Harvey Weinstein person and have us decide that he's emotionally repulsive because he's physically repulsive. I think it would have been so easy to make him a, a very handsome and charming man and have us resent him uh, for how he weaponizes uh, handsomeness or charm. Any of these things would have made him very specific and a very specific type of awful thing. And instead, he gets to be any type of awful thing that speaks to you personally, any type of of bad thing that you can imagine. And I think it works really, really well. Yeah, in that uh, scene in the elevator with a famous actor, I, uh, <laughs> I, I I briefly thought that was supposed to be the boss because I had missed in the lead up to this film that we never see him on screen. So I briefly thought like, just because of the way they were framed again with him sort of towering over her, I was like, oh, is, is this is this the boss? And I was like, I don't know if you want to have Patrick Wilson <laughs> be that guy. You know, that's kind of a, that, that's an odd choice. So I'm, I'm glad that wasn't in the case. And I think the, the choice to leave him off screen does pay off much better than casting Patrick Wilson would have. I think it also just really helps establish that feeling that they're all on tiptoes around mm-hmm. this void, this this giant sucking void in the mm-hmm. company. The, the waiting for Godot to come down to the car so we can go to the airport idea wouldn't work if we knew what that guy was and we were waiting on him. He's an absence at, at so much of the time. And like, as she is slipping into his office to leave him his lunch or to uh, replace his meds all of these like very personal little things that she's doing for him you just get the perpetual sense of her sneaking around with her head down again she's very mousy and he's kind of the cat as as McFadden points out he she doesn't have to worry about him pouncing on her in a sexual way but he yells at her reams are out on the phone all the time like he's sort of an an unseen terror and the entire film warps around his absence i I think it's a really bold choice real quick uh what does anyone know what the pharmaceuticals we see her stocking are are meant to be nope yeah. Some uh, some you inject, some you uh, ingest. Definitely some. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't know if there was some some detail being drawn out there. I mean, I'm sure if I went and looked what was on the label and googled it, I could have you know figured it out. But I don't know that we see the labels clearly enough. I was curious about that too. If we were supposed to be taking him as uh like maybe an older man on a lot of meds or like a man dealing with mental illness or with chemical dependencies, like I don't think that we have evidence for that. It's just something very 
personal in a way that she's doing for him like she's literally in his drawers uh like rooting around with uh, the chemicals that make his life and that's just part of her day-to-day so i have a lot of things to say in retort to all of this but i feel like we've been talking enough about (laughs) the film without our other films so we'll be back to talk more about the assistant in connection to working girl Hi. The new assistant's here. What address do you have? Okay, uh, hang on. Right. Uh, I'm not sure what happened there. Um... Sorry, who? Okay, let me check on that. I'll get back a to you. Girl. She says she starts today. Uh, hey. There's a girl waiting at reception. She says that she's supposed to start here today. Working here with us? Where's she from? Where's she from? Idaho. Idaho? Is that the one you met in Sun Valley? Oh, her. She's been here before. A few times. Uh, Send her in. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Comedy, right? For one, they're both very funny. Um, so, romance, comedy, romance, romance empowerment. Everything. Yeah, I mean, it, both, both have st- solid mainstream sensibilities. Curly hair. Yeah, it's got all that. It's got all of that. Um, Big coats. Okay, so it seems like the first place to start is just what do these two films have to say about women in the workplace, nineteen eighty eight. <laughs> Versus 2020, you know. And what if they had changed places? How about that? What if one was in one movie and the other was in the other? Maybe that's not. Oh as my good god! Of, I, of... I mean, I I'm going to jump on that one. So I, the thing that struck me as most interesting comparing these two movies in terms of women in the workplace was that we, we have two protagonists who at least claim that they're very ambitious, that they want to get ahead, that they want to, transcend the positions that they are stuck in. Granted, one of them is stuck in that position because she's been there for five weeks and is barely out of college. And one of them is stuck in that position because she's been moving from job to job to job because she doesn't like being held down by sexist rules and obnoxious bosses. So I feel like the big difference between them here is that one of them has the focus and drive and confidence and competence to like actually sees what she wants. And the other one, I mean, I'm sorry, but that moment in the HR office where she says she wants to be a producer and she sounds like a small frightened bunny peering out from under a rock when she says it. I just don't for a minute believe that she's ever going to be a producer. I don't believe she's ever, she's ever going to have the confidence for it. I don't believe anything about this, uh, this girl's future. I think if you swapped them out. She's so competent. We see her executing every part. Yes. Executing no. E- no, we see her executing every part of her job with great meticulousness and still. And meticulousness sometimes, some, is sometimes, not what makes a producer. No, but some, Ability yes, but, to wash dishes does no, not it, make yes, a producer. No, but, it, but also there's a lot of schedule management. There's a lot of shifting things around. No, I mean, that's th- all th- stuff th- a, pro- she's a very, producer's assistant does. No, but right, but she's very good at what she does. Like she is managing her job and doing what she is supposed to do very crisply and efficiently i don't think there's any it's not what makes doubt. a good producer fine but i mean <laughs> you know we can't necessarily know in the in the context of this job whether she's going to be a good producer or not but i think that she manages a circus of affairs 
based on his schedule shifting and based on all of the information that people need in the office. You know, the, the way she handles, you know, the driver, for example, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, diff- other different other arrangements that have to be made. That's what producers do. Producers arrange flights and arrange and, ta- and, and talk to various people at different modes of production and, and communicate as she does with a lot of different people on behalf of her boss. She, we see her doing that. I think she'd be a fine producer. Uh, and I think that she is having to, you know, bottle up you know, some pretty terrible things in order to get to that place. And, and who knows how she, long she's she, going to have to do it. She speaks up to the driver for one second. Just she, she basically she tells him to too. do her job, to do his job. And then she immediately apologizes. Yes. She is just thunderstruck by her own because charity. She but she understands saying, that he you is have also to stick agreed. to the schedule that, that we have, you know, that this is your job. Like, I'm just saying, if you swapped them out, I think she would sit there quietly at her desk and and be under Catherine's thumb for the rest of her life while quietly telling herself that she deserves more. And I think uh, if you swapped Tess into the assistant, she would know when the time was to act and she would walk in there with a, a binder full of reasons that that guy has to go. Or she'd just quietly undermine him or she'd quietly take his place while he's off flirting with a woman. She would like lock down that uh, the Japanese deal or whatever it was. I think it's unfair to compare the two where they are at the stage in both their life and their career. That's really because fair. I, because again, Jane is five weeks in to her first job. She is a little baby. Like I would, <laughs> I would hate for someone to consider whether I would ever be a professional writer based on what I wrote when I was twenty years old. You know, I wrote some things when I was older than twenty years old that I would not <laughs> want people to to read and think about me as a writer now, you know, like, whereas we meet Tess, when she is like, she's in her like, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore (laughs) phase, like she's been bouncing around and uh, been at the receiving end of so much indignity for so long, that she is ready to make this big move. And, you know, maybe in after five, 10 years of being treated this way, Jane will be ready to make a big move and maybe succeed at it, you know? My Um, sense with Jane is that she was absolutely the most talented person in this, pursuing this at Northwestern. mm -hmm. Um, And she got there on merit, but Northwestern is not New York. I mean, as a proud Chicagoan and slash, Mm -hmm. you know, adjacent to Evanston, I I can say that that it's not not the same, at least in terms of the film industry goes. And and, But I do sense, but, you know, I do feel like that she... Does have it? She does have what it, what it, or will have it, what it takes, or you know, something she can get through this this trial, or, or somehow change it. Which obviously, you know, the whole film is about the futility of trying to do that. But you know, if it continued to be a, a field in which merit was enough, she'd be great. Mm. But it's a film. She hasn't it. learned to play the game yet. This is a kind of about her learning to play the game, and in a lot of ways, and the other women in the company that she comes up against, the ones above her, are kind of showing her through their animosity, basically, what, <laughs> yeah. what, how to get ahead in this. I don't even know if it's necessarily in that. I think it's it's basically a combination of the game itself, um, yeah. more than a, uh, a a lesson that she's learned. Would you say you? Don't hate the player, but you hate the game. <laughs> um, I'd say that's an accurate assessment of my feelings about the the film. Yeah, 
so this is going to allow me to kind of circle back to the argument we were having in the first part. Uh, with, oh, good. With, we're circling back to an argument. Yeah, good. <laughs> We'd uh, abandoned that and moved on. I, I, I have to get this. That's all I ask. With, with just... respect, I just don't agree at all with the interpretation of the stuff involving this new executive assistant from Idaho. I feel like we could just put that on a needlepoint sampler and like sum up our professional relationship. With respect, I disagree with entirely respect. with everything you say. Yes, that's right. With all, yes, anytime, anytime the phrase with all due respect comes up, it's going to be, you, you know that the hammer is going to fall. But my feeling is that it is twofold with her, with, with Jane, is that one, she finds it absolutely preposterous and insulting that someone with who has obviously no experience and no business being in a in an equivalent position to hers is in that position because she is this attractive young woman who her boss has brought to the peninsula and promised her this job that is completely superfluous. To be fair, her, her father did work in craft services. Yeah, her father worked in craft <laughs> services. So, so she was in a movie once. I also feel that she shows compassion for this person. And that's something Reed, you, you all don't seem to share with me. But I do think that when she's showing her the ropes that she's trying to reach out to her. And I especially think at the end of the day, when this person has no real idea why she's there, can feel that she has no relevance in that position, that Jane treats her with a great deal of kindness in letting her go and just letting her go for the day and saying goodbye and we'll see sure. you later. I mean, I agree with all that, but I would also say that that comes when she's realized that she's stuck with her and that I, I don't think it in any way changes the earlier uh, connection between them where she didn't want to have anything to do with her and didn't want to talk to her. I think it's really interesting the degree to which everybody, every person to some degree, but also very specifically every woman in the assistant kind of feels like they're on edge against her. Uh, on edge against Jane in particular, and maybe on edge with each other. The blonde woman that comes in to read or test whatever it is that she's there for, who casually tosses her coat onto Jane, just mm -hmm. feels like she's radiating like such contempt for this person she sees as below her. The older executive who sort of sneers, they get more out of it than he does, seems like she similarly has like contempt for Jane's naivete. If you look at Working Girl, there is such a, a fellow feeling among the vast group of women uh, in Catherine's secretarial pool. Maybe none of the rest of them have the ambitions Tess does. Maybe none of the rest of them have the capacity to reach beyond the secretarial pool that Tess does. There's an implication there that Sin has maybe reached the level of her competence and her interest, that she's happy where she is, that maybe she feels that she doesn't have any place reaching higher and, and her little anti-pep talk sort of speaks to that. But there is sort of a feeling that they're not in competition with each other, uh, either as friends or as co-workers. And all of those other women who gather around to at, at the first workplace to throw Tess a little impromptu birthday party or at the second workplace to cheer her on as she kisses Harrison Ford or to congratulate her at, at what she's achieved. Like there's a, a feeling of 
camaraderie among women in Working Girl that the assistant just just can't muster at all. That's not a knock against it. It's just a comparison between the two that I think is interesting. That's actually a good segue into a sort of related connection that I want to talk about, which is the idea of workplace allies. And Tess has so many more (laughs) allies in the workplace than Jane does. She has approximately none. I guess maybe the two dudes she works with are sort of allies and that they help her uh, word her please don't fire me emails, but that's kind of the extent of it. Look, if she brought uh, the turkey sandwich instead of the chicken sandwich, you know, <laughs> they might yeah, be a little I, worse. Up I yeah. hate those two guys so much. I know. They're, <laughs> they're just oh, the, they're, they're the absolute worst. But uh, yeah. and, and when she comes back from the HR meeting, and of course, the HR person being the HR person has told everyone what she's come there with, which again, speaks yeah. to my experience. That is just, you know, when he, he says something like, you could come to us with this, you should come to us with this information which of course they you know she knows damn well what's going to happen they'll they'll bury it you know (laughs) there's not they're not they're not going to be helpful at all that said when they're leaving they do invite her to go out with them and maybe they do it because they know that she can't she has to stay in the office maybe they do it because they know she won't because it's not in her character maybe they feel they're perfectly safe but in that moment what i saw was she doesn't have any allies in that office but she's not making any attempts to make them Uh, and when these two men reach out to her she just says no she just rejects them and not in any sort of soft i have to stay here uh, for him but maybe next time or like i'd really like that maybe on the weekend like no connection she just kind of gives them a a kind of no no we're just not doing this i think she attempts to reach out to the executive assistant played by Perva Betty, who the one who brings Ruby to the office, and uh, Jane sort of makes a just a little attempt to like talk about what's going on there, you know, and she is is rebuffed. And I think it's notable that she is like so often rebuffed by women as well as as men. Um, and again, to bring it back to Working Girl and uh, to bring Catherine into the picture as a would-be ally, you know, like she does make attempts to foster that connection with Tess right out of the gate and seemingly does so successfully. Um while at the same time maneuvering behind her back and in the assistant it's like everyone is just a lot more open about the competition between them and that you know if you can't help me right now i have no use for you i think there's a really long tradition in cinema of the secretarial pool or the steno pool or any any group that in any way resembles that you, know, you you could look at like hidden figures and the uh, group of female mathematicians uh, particularly black female mathematicians aiding in the space race but any like all female sort of uh, work gathering in cinema is often regarded as just kind of a, a a warm and comforting place to be in where everybody where there might be like catty rivalries but for the most part everybody is on the same level and knows they're not going anywhere else so there's not a sense of competition. Whereas Jane's workplace is just so very obviously a situation of anybody who gets even slightly ahead is is pushing me back. Like there are never going to be many more openings than there are now. And the only way forward is for somebody else to step out. So everybody's in competition. And there's always just going to be that sense of edge between not just between the women, but between everyone. What both films kind of get to, and especially, and this is, of course, especially emphasized in The Assistant, is how the environment of an office starts from the top, you know, and the way the boss acts and treats his or her 
subordinates, you know, the type of environment that gets created from the top, it just infects the whole place. In the assistant, of course, it, it becomes a system of backbiting and oppression and, and ugliness um, that just that you can feel. I mean, this film is like skin crawling. This film to watch, uh, the assistant, which is why I like it. You know, like I like to have uh, my skin crawl for an hour and twenty five minutes. You also like terrible emotional violence more than yeah. I do. Also so terrible uh, physical yeah, violence. Yeah, so lots of that stuff. Um, so that, so so it was uh, pleasant for me in that respect to kind of be in that atmosphere. But like that's kind of the point of the movie, in a way. It's just kind of like okay, you know, I, I know people talked about among the question of like who knew when it came to someone like Weinstein, like who surely the people in his orbit knew so surely people in his office. And I think the film kind of asks the question like, okay, let's just kind of take that as a premise and see like what kind of atmosphere would bottle that stuff up and how do people relate to each other? How can they work for a monster like that? How does this function? And the film is kind of about answering that question in its own little minimalist way. But and I think I mean I you know Working Girls is is broader than that and isn't necessarily a workplace film in the way that The Assistant is. Um, but it is kind of it is interesting to see how much it matters how you know a boss operates. And it's something that Tess, of course, picks up on and learns at the very end of the film in the way that she ends up talking to her subordinate and the ideals that she thinks that Catherine is bringing to the table she's she's actually bringing the table in terms of just hey if you're if you're getting you know don't get me coffee unless you're getting coffee for yourself we can kind of figure things out as we go and there's kind of a sense of like collaboration there that she really longed for you know as a secretary and didn't didn't really get uh that she's going to change and maybe that that maybe her office is going to be different maybe people are gonna have a different feeling uh and it all kind of starts with this top and i think anybody who is who has worked in any kind of a company and every kind of job like that that knows that that's true that what happens at the top trickles down in terms of the uh ambiance in terms of like the feeling an office has yeah it's been my experience at every single job i've had especially when you change ownerships you can kind of sense the whole thing changing not to tell too many tales out of school but it happens one beat in Working Girl that we didn't really talk about that I think we should touch on, and, and maybe this is a place to do it, even though, you know, Catherine is not, even though she is the boss, she is not like the big boss, you know, she's just sort of the executive in, on this floor or whatever, one of the many executives on this floor. But the moment I, I wanted to bring up was when Catherine comes back from Europe where she's been laid up with a broken leg and she's coming back in her home and Tess is bringing in her luggage and Catherine turns on the computer and sees the Trask memo that Tess saw and that started this whole thing and she makes sort of a comment to Tess like oh did you see this and kind of makes up this whole story of like I was going to bring it but Jack has this like thing about stealing ideas and kind of makes up this whole explanation for why this memo would be there you know like she senses what might have happened and Tess is really thrown in that moment because you can kind of see her sensing that it could be true and if it is true what does that mean for what she has done to Catherine uh, as a result of, of what she saw and then a, a few scenes later Catherine is again immediately undermined when when Tess asks Jack uh, if you know he would have been upset if, if the idea came from someone else. He was like, no. But I just find that interaction between Catherine and Tess very 
telling because they are both sensing what the other thinks of them and how they might react and doing damage control in the moment. And it's not quite a back and forth because of the power differential between them, but it is just a very, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a telling interaction, I think. It's also very reminiscent of uh, what I was talking about in part one of this episode with the uh, the real joy of bad education being seeing how Frank is going to wiggle out of each new situation. Mm. Uh, Catherine is just so fluid in that moment, yeah. just seeing um, this is problematic. Let's invent an elaborate lie. It makes it a little less convincing that she is just so completely floored at the end by the question of how she came up with the radio idea. Like yeah. she, she literally has nothing. She, she doesn't even try to make an excuse and it's necessary for her scheme to fall apart the way it does. But it's maybe, it would maybe be a little more convincing if we hadn't seen her come up with such an elaborate and plausible and detailed and believable story out of nothing earlier. Although it is, I guess, possible that she had already prepared that story because it was eventually going to get out that uh, Trask had bought up this radio station and eventually she was going to have to uh, to face Tess. And I, I sort of wonder what her plan was in that regard. Oh, well, I think she also had no expectation that she would be questioned once she kind of pulled the mask off or whatever and revealed a test to be an imposter like she would take over and that would that would be that i don't think she would she ever thought she wasn't prepared to answer that question i think and i think you when you're in that moment you think you know improvising the type of response that Tess gives when she's talking about how she came up with the idea i I think it's just she can't do it even even a skilled you know liar manipulator like Catherine can't come up with something that detailed in the moment i don't think you know, you were talking about Sigourney Weaver's crutch work in that scene where she, <laughs> she does the big, uh, aha, but, you know, you've stolen my identity, but I, it is I who I'm the true architect of all of this, that sequence. But we should also maybe just talk about the physical, almost physical comedy coordination of that sequence in terms of the way the men all leap up from the table to support mm-hmm. her and then yeah. like like drop down into different attitudes of, of trying to help her, taking her crutch and offering her water and it it recalls the uh marilyn monroe doing diamonds are girls best friends just in terms of like the swooping in like men physically supporting her and lifting her and carrying wherever she wants to go it's like musical theater level physical coordination during that sequence as everybody sweeps in to help Catherine as she pretends her helplessness it's certainly an interesting contrast between that and the complete lack of support that jane faces from anyone and the way as she keeps getting herself into trouble everybody seems to kind of like fade back into the background except when they're sweeping forward to read over her shoulder and dictate and i am abjectly sorry for having disappointed you and i shall never (laughs) fail you again yeah um Speaking of uh, Jane fading into the background, I'm going to broach another connection through that, which is uh, the working wardrobes of the, of these two women um, or or two workplaces. And I was so struck in the assistant by what Jane was wearing, this very covered up turtleneck in an almost flesh tone, you know, like it, it she's very pale, you know, it's, it's pinkish, but it kind of just blends into her skin in these sort of like unflattering high water pants that I guess are on trend right now, but I think it's a bad trend. <laughs> I think, I think they're, they're, they're very unflattering pants. And she's 
Um, she's just dressed in a way that is both kind of designed for her to blend into her environment and also remove any hint of sexuality. And in Working Girl, of course, Tess has sort of a she basically has like a, a makeover scene. Again, Cinderella story. There's got to be a, a makeover scene where she sort of uh, takes on Catherine's wardrobe. And Catherine is like a very interesting figure on a on a costuming level because she sort of eschews the men's wear, big shoulder pad, business suit vibe in favor of couture and more feminine and bold design you know like there's a scene where she's wearing red and everyone around her is in in black suits she stands out as a woman by design and uses it to her advantage again the uh crutch scene being a good example you know she she basically swoons you know and so all the men are immediately on her side essentially you know like she she sort of uh puts herself in this very traditional feminine place in a way that the men around her respond to. And I think that comes through in her clothing as well. And then by extension, Tess's clothing when she sort of adopts Catherine's uh, wardrobe as her own. Jane's clothing in The Assistant is also like that shirt in particular. We see her from the back several times. It's got like a little sort of keyhole type fastener at the top. And it's just very thin fabric. And it mm. really contributes to the feeling that she's very fragile. She mm. her her porcelain skin and her her eyes that so easily tear up and her struggles to like fight down her emotions and keep her composure all speak to her fragility but the way she's dressed also just she seems very small you compare that to again the the blonde woman who sweeps in to read and her big bulky coat and her uh her big aggressive hair she just she seems like a larger than life actress figure and and she makes jane's feel so small and dowdy She's also got a bared midriff. Is the what Jane wears is the opposite of armor. Where you feel like in working in, in working girl is there's definitely a sort of a reign for battle or at least sort of protective coating going into the thought process behind their wardrobe. Up to yeah. and including the scene that uh, perhaps every working woman will recognize, where Tess uh, sweeps into the office in thick socks and uh, like athletic <laughs> shoes, and I is like it. kicking them off and, and slipping on her stilettos. Uh, even as she's trying to like actually do work on the phone, she's she's like uh, gearing up for battle. Like literally, she's she's putting on her armor, and and part of her armor is the femininity of these uncomfortable shoes that you're not going to get around New York City while wearing. I like have a sense memory of socks over pantyhose mm-hmm. inside athletic shoes, <laughs> like how that feels, and that's just something I associate with this era in time so strongly. There's also, I mean, speaking of of era and time, like you say, Catherine doesn't wear like the big shoulder pad suits. And that's certainly true. But that sequence where Tess is like going through her wardrobe and holding up various things she might wear to the party. And she ends up with this dress that's wide shouldered and wide skirted and covered with sequins. And she's like, oh, it's so elegant. It's so tasteful and simple. And I, I, I laughed. <laughs> it, like the the modern equivalent of that dress would be plain black, probably bodycon and 
shorter and just about a third as much fabric, not in terms of being revealing, but in terms of not having all of these like voluminous elements. When she holds it up over herself, like by modern uh, little black cocktail dress standards, it looks like she could get lost in it. And she's not a particularly delicate or elfin woman. So I, I just, I find that hilarious. I mean, she looks good in it. Jack even compliments her on like how elegant and tasteful her wardrobe is, but having her hold it up and say, uh, oh, I love this. It's so simple and elegant when it's covered with sequins just reminded me so much of Ellen Green in Little Shop of Horrors mm-hmm. talking about how she used to dress tawdry and, and slutty, not classy like she does now. <laughs> well, it, it, Do you know what else that dress isn't? What? Leather. <laughs> not even like leather. It, 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 it's six thousand uh, dollars, and it's not even leather. It's it's my favorite sequence in the movie. Huh? <laughs> oh, boo. Well, with that, uh, Working Girl is on DVD and Blu-ray. It can be rented online through the usual services. The Assistant is available for rental or purchase through these same services. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So, it's not a recent film at all, but um, one of the nice things I, I, I get to do sometimes is just write about things I've been curious about. it, And uh, I occasionally write about horror films for, for Fangoria.com, which I enjoy doing. And I had always wanted to see a film that intrigued me when I saw glimpses of it in uh, Los Angeles Plays itself, which we did as a uh, movie of the week back in the Dissolved days. And it's called Messiah of Evil, which is a really uh, visually striking, you can tell just from the bits you see in in Tom Anderson's film, and even more so when you see the actual film itself, which is uh, insane. It is a completely uh, nutty movie. It is co-directed by uh, Willard Huck and Gloria Katz, who are best known for their long association with George Lucas. Uh, they, they they were Oscar-nominated for their, their screenplay to American Graffiti, a film you might know. They made uncredited contributions to a film called uh, Star Wars, I think it's called. Leading to the big one, Keith. Come on, hit us with the big one. Well, they he, Huck directed uh, Howard the Duck. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in some ways, they did not have to, you know, they kind of uh, hitched their wagon to a star that didn't always allow, bring them their great, great success themselves. But this is a, a really interesting movie. And they basically, they weren't horror fans. They didn't have a lot of interest in making a horror movie, but they had financing for a horror movie. So they made this kind of strange uh, Michelangelo Antonioni inspired horror film um, set in early 70s Los Angeles in which a woman is recipient of some strange letters from her father and becomes slowly aware that she might be part of this scheme it might be this prophecy in which the antichrist is coming back it really doesn't make a lot of sense but it's filled with like these all kinds of amazingly like casually surreal scenes of like ghouls in a supermarket after dark um there's this great scene set in a movie theater where monsters kind of gradually gather around a woman you know i just recommend it as, as a as a bit of strangeness you won't see elsewhere uh there's a little caveat here it is widely available on streaming services but the ver- version on streaming services is pretty crappy looking uh it tends to be it, it, it fell into public domain 
uh, and it tends to be pan and scan and not so great looking. There is a Blu-ray from a company called Code Red, which isn't the easiest thing to find, but I would recommend tracking it down. It's also got some pretty cool uh, commentary tracks from Cats uh, and Hook. Um, uh, Cats, uh, unfortunately, uh, died a couple years ago. Hook is still is still uh, with us. But uh, it's a it's a one off thing. I, I I mentioned you know I mentioned it on Twitter and someone re- replied is like it's almost like an Italian remake of Carnival of Souls that happens to be an American movie and that's a pretty pretty <laughs> apt description of it. So anyway, uh, seek it out, Messiah of Evil. Wow, I did not know of that film at all. That is amazing, uh, Genevieve. All right. Well, uh, once again, I am not going to do a film, uh, but I am going to recommend a uh, currently airing TV miniseries that I think has a pretty strong thematic connection to this week's pairing, which is why I'm going to recommend it. And it's also just very good television in its own right. Um, I'm talking about the FX on Hulu miniseries, Mrs. America, uh, which follows the struggle to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment through the 1970s and stars Kate Blanchett as conservative gadfly Phyllis Schlafly, the ERA's most outspoken opponent. When it premiered its first three episodes, Mrs. American came in for some criticism for how it arguably humanizes Schlafly and thereby condones some of the hateful rhetoric she helped give rise to. But I have a hard time buying that argument in the context of the full series, which I have seen all of. Um, And I think the penultimate episode that airs the week after this episode drops, I believe, uh, will address that criticism directly. Blanchett is, of course, an extremely compelling actress, and she is characteristically great in Mrs. America, so it's understandable to feel a positive connection to her as a viewer. But in addition to its attempt to cover the scope of the feminist movement in the decade leading up to the Reagan administration, Mrs. America really uses Schlafly as a device to explore the compromises and concessions made by the Republican Party to evangelicals and other fringe interests up to and including the KKK. Uh, Additionally, Schlafly is positioned as an outside force pushing against the feminist movement and thereby exposing the various schisms and disparities within it, uh, which we see play out in storylines centered on Gloria Steinem, played by Rose Byrne, Shirley Chisholm, played by Uzo Aduba, Betty Friedan, played by Tracy Ullman, Bella Abzug, played by character actress Margot Martindale, and several other high-profile real-life people played by high-profile actors, uh, all of whom give really great performances. The series showrunner Dobby Waller is a former Mad Men writer who penned, among others, the excellent season four episode, The Beautiful Girls. Uh, And there's definitely some other Mad Men DNA in the series, including John Slattery playing Schlafly's husband. Uh, But more broadly, it's a thoughtful and nuanced period piece that attempts to map the sociopolitical shifts that take place over a tumultuous era. And it does so through thoughtful and well-crafted storytelling and artful period touches. I think it's a really special series and would encourage you to check out Mrs. America if you haven't already. And I can't believe none of you have. I know. So, I feel so disappointed in you. I feel so terrible. Sorry. It's, it's, it's very high on the agenda. I am yeah. just in the, in the middle of just, I just, there's stuff I have to do for work, work so much. So I don't, I don't get around to seeing series that are, are look really, um, yeah. Right I really want to watch it too. And like Rick Perlstein, who is you know no sympath, you know in no way sympathetic to right wing politics, and in a, a very detailed chronicle of that era, has been uh, over the moon for it on, on social media. Yeah, um, it, it's really good. But uh, Scott, what what do you got for us? Uh, yeah, so uh, when we um, talked about various pairings with the assistant, there were other ones that we we had considered and rejected. But the most pertinent film in terms of you know DNA, I guess, for the assistant is uh, Chantal Ackerman's. 
uh, Gene Dealman from 1975. And one of the, you know, sort of roadblocks for us as a podcast, <laughs> pairing the assistant with that with Gene Dealman is that Gene Dealman is three hours and 40 minutes long and done in a, in a if anything, more minimalist mode. I mean, this is a film um, that stars Delphine Seerig as Gene Dealman. And the film is ultimately, she's a widow who, and you see her just going through her daily routine and how just grinding it is. I mean, there's a famous scene where she's just peeling potatoes, just one after another of the you know, and you just watch her do it and that's the scene and she's also at the same time welcoming the occasional uh, gent- gentleman caller so she's she's turning some tricks here and there on the side and the film is kind of this it builds to something quite dramatic and shocking in the same way that the assistant does the assistant has that has the the big it's one big scene you know, kind of in the middle of the movie, in Gene Dealman, it's right at the very end, and it's quite shocking. But getting there, you're just seeing like cracks, little hairline cracks in the facade with this character, and you see it through her one day in the life. Uh, and um, and so the films just they have a tremendous amount in common. I think it made the last Sight and Sound top ten films ever list. I mean, it's a pretty it's an incredible movie, and it's it's hard for me to put into words why, but it is a good context setter for what Kitty Green is going for in The Assistant because the two films have so much in common. It's, it's so clear that she's kind of drawing from it. Uh, and if you if people want to check it out, it is you know a Criterion Channel. And probably will be, it's one of their kind of like catalog titles. So it'll probably be hanging out there for a while. But if you have, if you're, you know, if you like this type of film and, uh, and if you have, you know, three hours and 40 minutes to spare, what you do, you know, what, what are we doing now? We're, we're just sitting at home. <laughs> um, see Gene Dealman because it's a, it's pretty major. It's uh, number 35 on the last Sight and Sound Critics poll. It's, wow, it's, I thought it was top uh, 10. It's time, it was well, the highest it, film directed by a woman, right? It might very well be, but it's, it's tied with, it's good company. It's tied with Metropolis, Psycho, and uh, Satan Tango. Wow. Those are good movies. Tasha, how about you? Well, I was going to do something entirely different, but the fact that this came up during the the podcast, and I certainly didn't want to spend uh, you know three or four minutes just rambling on about my my deep seated love of this movie, it still seems like an excellent uh, opportunity to talk up my love of the Mike Nichols movie Closer. This was his second to last film, uh, his last film being uh, Charlie Wilson's War, and. It is in some ways minor nickels. It's based on Patrick Marber's play. It's it's basically just a screen adaptation of it. And it feels like it's one of those very theatrical, very obviously play-based kind of films. Um, it stars Natalie Portman, Jude Law, Julie Roberts, and Clive Owen as uh, four individuals who come and go in, in different couplings and bounce off of each other in different ways. And it's all just built around these scenes, generally just two of them at a time. Um, in each case, there's something in that scene that one of them needs and is trying to get from the other, uh, usually emotionally more than anything. And it just, the whole film for me is just such a masterclass study in uh, personal dynamics, in power dynamics specifically, in who has the power in a given scene uh, and who is trying to gain it, uh, of who has the advantage and who is struggling to get back on top. And the structure of the thing, again, is very stagey, just in terms of how they, they come and go as couples with each other. But the direction of it just feels so 
Mike Nicholsy in a way. I, I feel like Working Girl in particular shows how he would draw on the the kind of the rhythms, the emotional rhythms of 1940s movies for things like the scene at the bar, which I didn't particularly care for. And I kind of kind of dissed a little in terms of the sexual politics of that flirtation. But I kind of enjoyed the way it stretched out uh, in a way that doesn't seem at all like a, a modern movie's rhythms. It it feels like a 40s kind of meet cute with these two people jockeying for position with each other. And a lot of Closer feels the same kind of way. A lot of it is based on letting these scenes stretch out and using this like very fast paced, sometimes whip crack dialogue and these, these feelings of like hard emotional push and pulls to give the movie attention that it wouldn't have otherwise as what is in some ways a, a light relationship drama. The performances are, are really great. I would say I'm not sure Natalie Portman has ever been as good as far as I'm concerned as she is uh, in one scene here, uh, which is not to diss the rest of her career. I just think uh, she gives a, a fantastic performance in this film. And the, the film ends on a memorable moment with her that's that's just a stretched out emotional moment that kind of recalls the beginning of Working Girl. So I think this film speaks in some really interesting ways to other things going on in Nichols' career, to some of his obsessions with power dynamics and how people fight for what they want in soft ways uh, with each with each other in personal ways and and with society and and politics and art and industry in in other bigger ways, but I think it's also just a, a real crackerjack movie, and I think it's it's hugely underrated, maybe because at the time it was both minor and filled with people who maybe have been in too many films. It was definitely during that period where Jude Law and Julia Roberts seemed to be in in just everything. But I think looking back on it now would feel a lot like looking back on Working Girl now with just that sense of these are all really famous people uh, kind of operating at the the height of their, their youthful energy and sparking against each other in really interesting ways. So, yeah, it's it's very widely available on streaming services. Mike Nichols Closer. It's just yeah, that's a, what I've been a longtime to, favorite. I've been wanting to kind of revisit. If you look, you look at kind of the Nichols filmography of his last you know, handful of movies. That's kind of the the one that stands out is the kind of, even though it's a small movie, kind of the biggest swing conceptually and kind of it's, it's bold, I think, if I, but it, I don't remember much about it. So I, I would love to kind of revisit it. But does it feature Gary Shandling as an alien <laughs> with vibrating genitals? First of all, no spoilers. And second of all, it, yes. And it also features a dolphin that's out to kill the president. Absolutely incredible. So, so Actually, the, the, the alien with the vibrating genitals and the dolphin are in a scene together where they, they each want something and they're struggling for power. It's it's a really riveting moment. You probably only see that in the, the very difficult to find uh, director's cut, though. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Primary Colors is very good, too. All right. Primary later, Colors. Later, later Nichols. Oh boy, that's got to be a real time capsule. Good lord. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's it for this edition of the next picture show. Our next pairing is coming out May 19th and 26th. Tasha, what's coming up next? In 2014, British essayist and fiction author Caitlin Moran published How to Build a Girl, a heavily autobiographical novel about how she broke into music journalism as a fat, awkward teenager trying to reinvent herself as the kind of fantasy diva she saw in magazines. 
The new film adaptation, starring Booksmart's Beanie Feldstein as Moran's on-screen avatar, is a lively comedy that simultaneously takes down the music, fashion, and journalism industries while presenting a pretty admirable coming-of-age fantasy about having it all early on in life and learning some lessons that most of us don't get to until our midlife crisis. It reminded us a lot of Almost Famous, Cameron Crowe's equally semi-autobiographical film about how he became a teenage music correspondent for Rolling Stone magazine and got to hang out on the edge of the rock star lifestyle while learning some hard life lessons about the cost, both of that lifestyle and of trying to cling to its edges as a hanger-on. It's two films based on the real lives of former precocious teen music writers next time on The Next Picture Show. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Working Girl, The Assistance, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Genevieve? Uh, I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? So, you know, another really good late Mike Nichols project is Wit, which is adaptation <laughs> of the play he did for HBO. Um, sorry, Emma Thompson. She would have won Best Actress that year if that had been released in theaters. And you can find me on uh, Twitter at kfips3000. Uh, you can find me writing for places like Vulture, Fangoria, The Ringer, um, TV Guide, uh, Rolling Stone occasionally. I'm, I'm all over the place. Uh, and, you know, like I said, kfips3000. Uh, on Twitter, Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, at Washington Post, at uh, Vulture, at The Ringer, and other fine places. Uh, you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Ah!